You can never control when your book is going to enter the world, when the sort of circumstances of society, when your book enters the world. I worked on this book for four years, and it has obviously entered the world in a moment where we are having these conversations around critical race theory, the 1619 Project. Juneteenth has become a federal holiday for the first time. So a lot of what I touch on in the book, slavery and history and memory, how we remember are obviously top of our public discourse at the moment. So in many ways, it, it entered, I think, at just the right time. Clint Smith, New York Times number one best-selling author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America, coming up on The Janice Adams Show. First, the news. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. Slavery in America, will we never get past our past? A major milestone on the way to doing just that for those who dare is the highly anticipated book by our guest today, Clint Smith, Atlantic staff writer, poet, and author of How the Word is Past, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery in America. Now, when our public discourse is being muddled by lies and our moral core whittled down by white supremacist angst, Clint Smith is a gift, but you don't have to take my word for it. Clint, I am so happy that we are doing this today as opposed to a little while ago, even though I've been hearing about the book with great anticipation for months now, really. But because by doing it today, I get to say New York Times bestselling author, Clint Smith, author of How the Word is Passed. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. You know, it's been a wild whirlwind of a couple of weeks. Uh, the book has been out for three weeks now, and I can't believe it's only been three weeks, but also that it's already been three weeks. So it is, uh, it's been amazing. People have asked me how I feel, and I, I, I describe it as one, like when a dog sticks their head out of the window of a moving car, where it's just sort of unbridled joy and jubilation, and also a sort of sensory overload. Um, and And it's sort of both of those things. So it's been amazing and I'm still trying to catch my breath. Well, congratulations. I can imagine that it's extraordinary and the fact that you've achieved this, but how does it make you feel in terms of the subject matter of the book and what that says about where we are now and what's going on in the country? As a writer, you never you can never control when your book is going to uh, enter the world um, or you can never control rather when the sort of circumstances of society, when your book enters the world. So I've, I worked on this book for four years um, and it has obviously entered our, you know, entered the world in a moment where we are having these conversations around critical race theory, the 1619 project um, and where Juneteenth, you know, has become uh, a federal holiday for the first time, our first federal holiday in over four decades. So a lot of what I touch on in the book and slavery and history and memory um, and how how we remember um, are, are obviously top of our public discourse at the moment. So uh, in many ways, it, 
it entered, I think, at just the right time. What is How the Word is Passed about? So How the Word is Passed is about different historical sites across the country and how they reckon with or fail to reckon with their relationship to the history of slavery. So I go to plantations and cemeteries and monuments and memorials and try to understand to what extent are these places running from, directly confronting, or doing something in between with regard to their personal uh, relationship to the legacy of slavery on that land, in that place. You go down the list, Monticello Plantation, the Whitney Plantation, Angola Prison, Blandford Cemetery, Galveston Island, New York City, Goree Island. Why those places? So the origin of the book began in New Orleans, uh, which is where the prologue is set. And part of what was happening is that I was watching in 2017, the statues of Robert E. Lee, PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, these leaders of the Confederacy, I was watching them come down in my hometown and thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority Black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And what does that mean? What did it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard. To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway that my middle school was named after the leader of a, the, a leader of the Confederacy. The street my parents live on today is named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. And what are the implications of that? Because we know that symbols and names and statues and memorials, and they aren't just symbols. They are reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories embed themselves into the narratives that societies carry. And those narratives shape public policy, and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. So it's not to say that putting up a statue of Robert E. Lee or taking down rather a statue of Robert E. Lee is going to reduce the racial wealth gap or erase the racial wealth gap. But it is to say that it is a part of an ecosystem of ideas that shape our public consciousness and that help us understand what has happened to certain communities uh, and what must be done in order to make amends for what has happened to certain communities. And so I started thinking about how slavery was remembered or misremembered in my own hometown in New Orleans and then kind of broadened it out across the country to think about, well, what are the different places that represent the sort of patchwork of memory and, and the patchwork of stories um, that, that sh reflect the sort of inconsistency with regard to how the story of slavery is told across this country. And so ultimately wanted to go to, I go to eight different historical sites or places or cities and wanted to pick places that reflected the different uh, places on the spectrum of memory um, and how each of these places, whether you're going to Angola prison on one end of the spectrum uh, or the Whitney plantation or the, on the other, or the Blandford cemetery, the Confederate cemetery on one end of the spectrum or Monticello on the other to think about the ways that these different places uh, directly confront or fail to confront that history. Um, and, and so the places I picked, I think, embody a lot of the themes that one might have found um, in, in a host of different places. As I listen to you talk about the places that you've chosen for this book, I'm really struck and appreciative of the way you actually begin the book with your author's note in terms of acknowledging what this land is that we're talking about. Could you just read a little of that for us, please? Yeah, I'd be happy to. 
author's note. I would like to note that while this book is focused on the places where the story of slavery in America lives on, the land upon which many of these historical sites sit belong to indigenous communities before it belonged to anyone else. Of the eight U.S.-based sites I visited for the book, New Orleans sits on Chittimacha land and Choctaw land, Monticello sits on Monacan land, the Whitney Plantation sits on Choctaw land, Angola Prison sits on Choctaw land, Blandford Cemetery sits on Appomattox and Nottoway land, Galveston, Texas sits on Okokisa land, Karankawa and Atakapa land. New York City sits on Muncie Lenape land, and the National Museum of African American History and Culture sits on Nachotank and Piscataway land. It should be noted that native territories often overlapped and had malleable borders that shifted over time. This list is not definitive, but is one attempt to acknowledge those who first traveled to this land and to do so as accurately as possible. I thank you for that. I'm always struck as an African-American woman, as a historian, as a journalist, but I'm still struck by the phrase slavery being America's original sin. And I wonder how the devil are we going to confront slavery if we can't even speak the fact of what happened before slavery? And you actually open your book with that testament. Yeah, it, it was deeply important to me. I mean, especially because this book is, is about land and landscapes and topography. I couldn't write about any piece of land in this country without, and, and specifically in the context of a history book, without acknowledging the people who that, beland, that land belonged to before it belonged to anyone else. Um, it just felt it was just very clear to me that that was something that was important to do. Um, and I think to the point of, of original sin, this country has multiple original sins, you know, uh, native genocide sits alongside uh, chattel slavery as, as the sort of original egregious uh, foundations upon which this country was be, has been built. Um, and I think any writer or scholar or journalist who um, is thinking seriously about U.S. history and its origins and its foundations has to hold both of those at once and, and recognize that both of those are, are deeply entangled in one another and that the, who the U.S. was and, and what it would become uh, was built on the land of indigenous people by the hands of enslaved people. And that both of those things together uh, made, made this country possible. How the word is passed. The whole city is a memorial to slavery. Your prologue is for something so painful, is so so precise and beautiful. Could you read it for us, please? Thank you so much. I'd be happy to. I will read uh, the first section of the prologue. The sky above the Mississippi River stretched out like a song. The river was still in the windless afternoon, 
its water a yellowish brown from the sediment it carried across thousands of miles of farmland, cities, and suburbs on its way south. At dusk, the lights of the Crescent City connection, a pair of steel cantilever bridges that crossed the river and connect the east and west banks of New Orleans, flickered on. Luminous bulbs ornamented the bridge's steel beams, like a congregation of fireflies settling onto the backs of two massive, unbothered creatures. A tugboat made its way downriver, pulling an enormous ship in its wake. The sound of the French Quarter, just behind me, pulsed through the brick sidewalk underfoot. A pop-up brass band blared into the early evening air, its trumpets, tubas, and trombones commingling with the delight of a congregating crowd. A young man drummed on a pair of upturned plastic buckets, the drumsticks in his hand moving with speed and dexterity. People gathered for photos along the, river, the river's edges, hoping to capture an image of themselves surrounded by a recognizable piece of quintessential New Orleans iconography. After the transatlantic slave trade was outlawed in 1808, about a million people were transported from the Upper South to the Lower South. More than 100,000 of them were brought down the Mississippi River and sold in New Orleans. Leon A. Waters came and stood next to me on the riverfront, hands in pockets, lips compressed, overlooking the Mississippi's slow bend between the two shores of the city. I had been introduced to Waters by a group of young Black activists in New Orleans who were part of the organization Take Em Down NOLA, whose self-espoused mission is, quote, the removal of all symbols of white supremacy in New Orleans as part of a broader push for racial and economic justice. Waters has served as a mentor to many members of the group. They see him as an elder statesman of their movement and credit him for being a central part of their political education. Waters, in his late 60s with a graying mustache sitting over his lips, wore a black sports coat over a gray and white striped shirt with the top button undone. A navy blue tie hung loosely below the unfastened collar and swung over the waistband of his faded blue jeans. A pair of thin-framed, rectangular-shaped glasses sat high on the bridge of his nose, the left lens with a slight smudge on its bottom corner. His voice was low and unvarying in its tone. Waters might be mistaken for surly, but his disposition is simply a reflection of the seriousness with which he takes the subject matter he is often discussing, the subject of slavery. We are standing in front of a plaque recently put up by the New Orleans Committee to Erect Markers of the Slave Trade, outlining Louisiana's relationship to the transatlantic slave trade. It's doing its job, Waters said of the plaque. All through the day, people come in, they stop, they read, take pictures. It's another way of educating people to this. I find it so... The fact that his name is Waters mm. really caught me or struck me in a, in a visceral way because of the quote from Toni Morrison with which you open the book. You know they straightened out the Mississippi River in places to make room for houses and livable acreage. Occasionally the river floods these places, floods, is the word they use. But in fact, it is not flooding. It is remembering, remembering where it used to be. And here you have Mr. Waters 
Yeah. No, I never even thought of that. No, I, I, that's, that's the lovely thing about having readers is, is they make connections that you never made yourself. You know, I, I, I think that's a beautiful connection. The it, one that hadn't is. occurred to me. Wow. Well, you know, as you read those opening lines, this is a book that journeys such harsh realities and at the same point journeys to points of triumph and joy and transformation. So I wanted to ask you, before we get into the actual subject matter of these different places that you went to, um, as a poet, what do the revelations of this book, of the sense of place, of where you've been, what does that intake of information do to the soul and spirit of a poet? I think part of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to contribute was by, you know, I've spent the last several years uh, deeply engaged in uh, and, and researching and reading uh, books by scholars on, on the history of slavery, books like Annette Gordon Reed's The Hemingses of Monticello, Dinah Ramey Berry's The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, Walter Johnson, Soul by Soul, David Blight, Race and Reunion, Leslie Harris and Ira Berlin, Slavery in New York, and the list goes on and on. And part of what I wanted to do was to take the best of this history, the best of this historiography, and to put it in conversation with the physical landscape that it's speaking to. Um, and so when you read a book like The Hemings is a Monticello, what does it mean to, to go to Monticello and to stand on that land? What does the land look like? What does it smell like? What does the air taste like? Who are the people who are responsible for telling the story of that land? Who are they? What are their backgrounds? What do their voices sound like? What does it mean to stand inside? To, it's one thing to read about a slave cabin, I think, and it's another thing to, to stand inside of one and to hear the way the wood moans under your feet when you take a step to see the way that light sort of sneaks in through cracks in the wood um, revealing how susceptible to the elements the people who lived there would have been. And I wanted that sense of sensory intimacy, that sort of physical intimacy to manifest itself in the writing. Um, and I think part of what poetry has done is it teaches me how to pay attention, to pay attention to the most granular, the most minuscule of detail that when you include it, makes you see something or experience something in a way that you have never experienced it before. That, you know, you might, in writing about a leaf, a single leaf on a single tree, and like paying attention to the, the most specific physical details of that leaf that you see that tree that you pass every, every day in a new way. It forces you to slow down and pay attention. So I say all that to say, my sensibilities as a poet were, you know, are, I think, all over this book um, because I wanted it to feel almost cinematic. I wanted it to feel like a novel. I wanted it to feel novelistic, like a, in a piece, as much as it is a piece of history, I also wanted it to exist in the world as a piece of literature. Um, 
it does mm -hmm. have that kind of narrative arc to it because I, at one point I was saying as I was reading through, okay, so where and when is he going to confront certain demons? Where is his dragon going to be? Where mm. is he going to slay his dragon? And what is kind of the elixir that he will bring back to us? And it's all there, the story, the, the pacing, the, the, just the sense of the quest mm. is. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, because that was that was the goal. I mean, I wanted I that I I wanted it to be that I was the the protagonist of this story that you were reading, yeah. and, uh, and that I wanted the emotional and psychological stakes to feel high as well, you know. And I think that part of the thing about reading nonfiction is that it kind of, or excuse me, about writing this sort of nonfiction story is that it leads you don't know where it will lead you, right? So when I decided to write this book in 2017. I had no idea that I would end up spending the day at one of the biggest Confederate cemeteries in the country alongside the sons of Confederate veterans. That is reflective of the serpentine path that this book put me on. But it also makes it so that you are you are quite literally as the reader on this journey with me. Um, there is no sense of predestination. Um, it is a, I am, this book is written as a, as a matter of me finding things out and learning things um, often for the first time. And it is not a didactic text. It is not a, uh, I hope a preachy text. It is something that is um, where you, where the reader is experiencing and having these revelations and moments of joy and moments of fear and everything in between um, alongside me at the same time. I absolutely felt that. And I loved the fact that you even brought in the journey that some of the people you met along the way were taking. Mm. Uh, for example, those who came to Monticello mm -hmm. and the kind of transformation that they go through being in that place mm -hmm. and those who do or do not know the fuller story of Thomas Jefferson. So let's start with Monticello. What is the trigger that makes you say that that is one, because you could have gone to George Washington, mm -hmm. you know, head founder, slave master, number one. Yeah, no, I, I it's a great point. And I think I mean, I could have written, so I, you know, the, the book begins in Monticello after mm -hmm. the prologue and I, I could have written about, to your point, Mount Vernon, uh, where George Washington lived. I could have written about Mount Pillar, where yeah. James Madison lived. Uh, I mean, there we, 12 of our first 18 presidents owned enslaved people. Um, eight of them owned enslaved people while they were in office. And so there is no shortage of uh, sort of trips I could have taken to the homes of some of our earliest presidents and founding fathers who uh, whose relationship to history is is very intimate. But I wanted to go to Monticello in part because I think that Monticello embodies and carries so much of the and Jefferson specifically, I think, personifies so much of the hypocrisy and so many of the contradictions and so much of the cognitive dissonance of this country in the sense that America is a country that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable 
opportunities for upward mobility and resource accumulation for millions of people across generations in ways that their ancestors could have never imagined. And that it has also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed to create that wealth accumulation and upward mobility for the other group. And both of those things are the story of this country, right? We have to hold both of those realities at once in order to understand the totality of what the United States is. And I think Jefferson in his own life personifies that, right? He is the person who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world and also someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He is someone who wrote in one document that all men are created equal and wrote in another document that black people are inferior to white people in both endowments of body and mind, said that the slave was incapable of love and the slave was incapable of possessing or sustaining complex emotion. And so when we think about Jefferson, we have to hold multiple truths and realities at once as well, right? He is somebody who was very, very smart and arguably brilliant, and also someone who enslaved his own children. When we come back here on the Janice Adams Show, more with our guest, Clint Smith. His newest book, New York Times best-selling book, How the Word is Passed. More after the break. my guest here on the Janice Adams Show. He is Clint Smith. He is the author of the new book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. As much as I love the cover, the name, I love the quote from Ibram Kendi. We need this book. Indeed, we do. In the last segment, we talked about Thomas Jefferson and some of the hypocrisies, conflicts of Thomas Jefferson. That relationship with Sally Hemings, who was 16 years old when he was in his 40s, at best, what are the words that we use for someone like that today when their name is not Thomas Jefferson? What are the words that we use for someone when they are buying, selling, and trafficking other human beings? He's a predator. If you want to say that he's not a predator, then why do you have such a hard time saying that he had some kind of a romantic relationship with this young woman? But we don't want to say that because what could be worse than a white man of his time and place falling in love with a Black woman? So we got to figure out someone. All of these machinations to pass down just outright lies. You're a writer. You're a poet. There's a phrase, the stories we tell become the world we live in. What Mm -hmm. is the lasting effect of this kind of contortion of our language and of our definitions and all of that into the world that we are still living in today? Yeah, it's, it's profound. I mean, I think to your point about Jefferson, I think what we should name directly, and you alluded to this, is he was in his 40s. She was a teenager. She was his human property. We have no way of knowing to what extent there was a romantic uh, element to their relationship. 
But what we do know is that we cannot understand any relationship to the extent that it can even be called one between an enslaver and his enslaved human female property. And any sec, we can't understand any sexual relationship between those two as anything that is shaped by something other than the power dynamic at play, right? Like it, it is regardless of the emotional texture of that relationship, what it was or wasn't, he owned her. So we can't even understand, like we have to think of, of agency and free will in that context because she is not in a position to say no. At some point while they are in Paris, a sexual encounter is had because when she comes back to the United States, she is pregnant uh, and she loses that that child. Um, a child does not live uh, beyond infancy. Um, but, but, you know, Jefferson had to make a make a deal with with Sally Hemings. He had to say, like, she could have stayed in France and been a free woman. She was free in France, ostensibly. I mean, Jefferson had to keep secret from the French government, even though he was a diplomat of the United States, that he had enslaved people living with him because that was against the law. Um, so they could have gone to the authorities, become free, uh, and lived their lives. She and her brother James lived their lives as free people in, uh, in Paris. But he told her that her children um, would be free uh, when they became adults. And that is part of what got her to get on this ship and come back. And he also kept the rest of her family enslaved mm-hmm. here in the United States while he was abroad with her. Mm-hmm. So we don't know, but we do know that there was another wedge of power over her and her brother, whether or not they came back because other members of their family. Mm -hmm. And I think, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's an important point that we don't consider more broadly with regard to the history of slavery. Sometimes people will say, well, like, you know, why didn't this so-and-so run away? Why didn't the slaves run away? Why didn't they do that? And, And we, you know, we can go on for hours about the sort of way that the insidiousness of, white supremacy makes us ask why someone didn't run away rather than why was there an institution enslaving them. But why did, the, why did uh, Rosa Parks keep her seat instead of asking why did that man want her seat? Exactly. Right. And that, and that's such an, an important shift in the framework um, that I think we can, we should engage and interrogate across history. But but one of the things that I discovered in when, uh, while writing this book, and that was mentioned to me when I was at the Whitney Plantation, is that one of the very basic reasons why people didn't run away was because their families would be threatened, right? Like they, if you, they're like, if you, so it's not, it's not an individual decision. I mean, that's even, that's without the idea that like that person, if they were caught, that they were in fatal danger. Um, and that they very well may be tortured and, and even killed. But like, if you run away, and even if you are successful, even if you make it to Canada, 
the person enslaving you is saying, if you run away, I what I will do to your parents or to your brother and sister or to your children or to your loved ones is is torture them. Like that is what it is. When Sojourner Truth famously had one of her talks with God and decided to leave her enslavement and bring her youngest child with her, to your point about what happens, I'd long known that one of her children was then sold south. Mm. What I didn't realize is that it was a five-year-old. So here we are then talking about Sally Hemings and her family put into context. There was a whole lot more going on than blaming her as a victim for his crimes as a trafficker. You went to the Whitney Plantation. In the book, it's next. But were they next when? Uh, I went to Monticello first. And then Angola was actually second. Angola Prison. Angola Prison was second. And Whitney was third. So the Whitney... Whitney was a powerful experience. I mean, it was, it is for, for those who aren't familiar is the only plantation in Louisiana that centers the lives of enslaved people um, rather than centering the lives and story of the enslavers. Um, But it is surrounded by a constellation of plantations where people continue to hold weddings, uh, where they use the former slave cabins as bridal suites for those weddings, where, Uh, People celebrate one of the most joyous days of their lives on a site of intergenerational torture and exploitation. And the Whitney fundamentally rejects that a plantation can be understood as anything other than a torture site. And, uh, but holds, uh, holds the duality of centering and interrogating this land as the site of torture and exploitation while lifting up and centering the humanity of the people who were subjected to it, right? So it is that you both center and recognize and are honest about the violence, but also never allow the people subjected to that violence to become abstractions or to become caricatures or to become invisible. Um, that you you see you hear their names, you see their words, you uh, have to sit with the the way that they were they were people just like us, right? They were people just like us. And it is a place that also makes us confront directly the way that slavery particularly impacted women and children. Um, and Harriet Jacobs writes about this hauntingly in incidents of in the life of a slave girl, um, where she talks about the sort of omnipresent threat, the way that the fear of sexual violence is something you like that enslaved women carry in their bones, that it can happen at any moment and that you have little control over. Um, over what someone will do with your body or do to your body. Years ago, I was at James Madison University and I attended a lecture where two descendants of Jefferson came to the university. One descendant from his white line and one descendant from his Hemings line. Mm. And they were talking about the stories that had been passed down to them. And one of them, to your point about women, was, you know, we all have, once again, this fiction 
about what plantation life was about and like the gone with the wind kind of nonsense. Um, those scenes where the men and the women separate after dinner and the men are in their smoking jackets and they go off. And they said what they now knew from the stories passed down to them at both Jefferson's house and at Montpelier, that after dinner, the reason they separated was because the men were offered a slave to rape. And the word for it was dessert. What are we supposed to say about that? You know, once again, to this point of Montpelier and Monticello and Madison and Jefferson and what they were all up to, one of Thomas Jefferson's children is named Madison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're all named after people who were um, friends of friends of Jefferson. Yeah. But the Whitney plantation you point out because it, it has taken a different stance. And indeed, you you write an open book up under the sky. I, I'm so taken by, by your language. Um, between the wooden white fence and the red brick path where I stood. Could you read that section to us, please? I'd be happy to. Between the wooden white fence and the red brick path where I stood, there was a plot of earth where the dark heads of 55 black men sat on metal stakes. Their heads were balanced on robust silver rods that pushed their necks toward the sky. Their eyes were shut and some of their faces were contorted as if frozen in a permanent state of anguish. Each jawbone was chiseled as much by indignation as by a tool in someone's hand. Many had thin white bandanas wrapped around their foreheads, the small knots lying against their temples. Sunlight glinted from the ceramic statues and created a soft glow. It almost seemed as if their gleaming cheeks were covered in both blood and sweat. These heads, renderings of a violent past, are an exhibit at the Whitney Plantation in Wallace, Louisiana, located an hour west of New Orleans, past the brackish estuary of Lake Pontchartrain, through the residue of sugarcane that still sings through the land. From a distance, the human likeness of these statues is so unsettling that I get closer, just to be sure. In the warmer months, gnats and flies swarm, while wasps begin nesting on the underside of open necks, their collective buzzing around their heads, sounding like an army of small drones. Each of these faces is nameless, with the exception of the ten that sit at the front. Maratun, Cook, Gilbert, Amar, Lindor, Joseph, Dagobert, Comina, Hippolyte, Charles. These were the leaders of the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. These were the people who decided that enough was enough. Your own sensory perception, therefore, of being in that space. How did it feel to breathe after you saw those heads on stakes? Hmm. So many of these things, the heads on the stakes, the uh, field of angels at the Whitney Plantation, which uh, documents the thousands of enslaved children who died um, as children um, and often in infancy 
in Louisiana. Um, really, I mean, so many of these places. What it did was part of what I want the book to do is not only ground us in our physical proximity to this period of time, right? In, in our how this period and how this history is is scarred into our physical landscape, into our topography, into the land, but also our temporal proximity, right? That this, this, that this history we tell ourselves or have been told was a long time ago wasn't in fact that long ago at all. I think all the time about how slavery existed for 250 years in this country and has only not existed for about 150. So this institution that exists, that existed for a century longer than it hasn't, I think it's not until, I'd have to double check this, but I think it's not until 2111 that slavery will have existed in this country, will have not existed in this country for as long as it existed. Just to to really double down on this point, like the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2016 alongside the Obama family, she was the daughter of an enslaved person, not the granddaughter, not the great granddaughter. She was the daughter. In 2016, of someone who had been born into intergenerational chattel slavery. So the idea that that history would have nothing to do with what the contemporary landscape of inequality looks like is so profoundly morally and intellectually disingenuous um, in ways that, that are absurd, right? Like we have to understand and I think that going to these places and standing on that land and seeing these this infrastructure, this sort of physical soil and buildings built by and lived inside of by enslaved people, just reminds me that this wasn't that long ago. I learned about slavery in elementary school like it was something that happened when the dinosaurs were around. Yeah. Like it was the Flintstones and slavery. Like they were all there together. This was well, not a long time ago. It was not a long time ago at all. Not at all. You mentioned when you were speaking earlier, um, you you mentioned the children of slavery. You have a, a young son. Mm, How do. old is he now? I have a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. When will you start telling them about the work you do and how will you tell them about the work you do? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I mean, they are, I think, uh, tickled by the fact that their dad has written a book and that they can see my picture in the back of a book, like the, so many of the books that they read. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when will I start to tell them about this? I mean, I think you... Part of what you try to do is you scaffold the conversation in ways that are age appropriate, right? I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I mean, I think you, even with my four-year-old, he's like, what's your book about? And I think you, I've tried to frame it as that there are people uh, who treated other people um, in deeply unkind ways, um, who, who were not kind and who were um, and who were quite mean even when they knew they shouldn't have been, even when they knew better. And part of what we have to learn from these people is that you are kind to everyone. 
no matter who they are, where they're from, and that you never treat someone poorly because they are different than you. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of the nature of how we talk about it now. And, you know, as he turns five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, the Nate, the, the way that we talk about it will evolve. Um, yeah. 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 Um, how did your parents talk to you about it? Hmm. It's a good question. I think my, so much of my early childhood is like little patches of memories that don't come back to me until I start talking to my parents about it. Um, I think they aired on the side of, I mean, we, we always talked about it when I was, I mean, we, we talked about the way that this country treated black people at dinner time all the time. You know, that this was part of the conversation. It was part of the air of our home, of our church. Um, but there wasn't always the specificity. You know, my, my parents aren't historians. They're not, they're not, you know, they are working professionals who have a, a good sense of history. And, but, but part of what this book did, I think, was give me the, the specific historical context that helps me understand, um, helps me more fully understand why this country looks the way that it does today. Um, and, you know, I, I did talk to my mom about it and she was like, I wish that we had been more direct sometimes, but I think they were also trying to protect me. And I, I credit my parents all the time because I grew up in a home that always felt safe and loving and affirming. Um, and I think that they wanted to make sure that they were providing that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and again, we, we talked about it, but it was not, um, I was not oversaturated with it or anything. Um, and I think there's so much that my parents weren't taught. Right. And so you can only yeah. teach what, what other people have taught you. And so they, you know, my, both my parents have read the book and, and talked about how much they learned from it that they didn't know, um, which, it's, which is a real treat. It's such a hard thing because it's, it, Sometimes it's about the parents, but also it's about when we're coming of age with this conversation. The eldest member of your family alive, who would that be? That would be my grandfather. He is 90 years old. How does he feel seeing maybe things that were unspeakable in his time and that you're actually going to those places? And For the book, he is... Uh just so proud. I, I FaceTimed him um, after I found out that the book was number one New York Times bestseller and and told him. And he he was just like, I never thought that I would have a grandson having grown up in Jim Crow, Mississippi in the 1930s, that I would have a grandson who was a number one New York Times bestseller. I just never imagined it. Mm -hmm. Um and so to be able to share that with him, especially with a book that that includes him in it, um, yes, is is special beyond anything I can express. Um, and your epilogue, my grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. You repeat that several times. The experience of going back to Dakar, to the island of Goree. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because I had been there uh, about a decade prior um, when I studied abroad in Senegal as a college student. 
And so I was coming back to this place and I, I was thinking about how much my understanding of what this place represented has changed um, over the past decade, how more deeply, uh, how more, how much more intimately I, at that point understood the, the specific and idiosyncratic horrors of the slave trade. Like I, when I was 19, 20, I, I understood it. I was like, slavery was this horrible thing. I, I, you know, I understood it, I think as well as the next person. But by the time I went to Gore, I had been deeply immersed in years of, of research on this topic. And, and the, the smallness of the rooms, the smell of the ocean, the, the wetness of the walls, all hit in a different way because I, I could see in a different way the people who would have been held there, who would have been, you know, about on the cusp of being brought to a land they had never known where their generations of progeny um, and descendants would, would go on to live. Um, it just all felt so much closer than it, than it had before. And in memoriam, what's our takeaway of what we need to tell those people in spirit today? What I think of is that I am a part of a lineage of those people, part of a tradition of those people who fought for freedom for generations and many of whom never got to see freedom for themselves. And I think often about how so many people over the generations, over the centuries that slavery existed in this country, fought for freedom that they knew they might never see themselves, but they fought for it anyway, because they knew that someday someone would. And that my life is only possible because of that. And I think what responsibility does that bestow on me? to work to build a more just, equitable, fair world in ways that I might not be the beneficiary of, in ways that I might never see, but, but to do it because someday someone will. And, and because that is what made my life possible. So what am I going to do to make something possible in someone else's life in, you know, in ways that I can't even conceive of right now? And because of your work and witness, the book is now a New York Times number one bestseller, and that is important as an author, but it is extraordinarily important because of the story you tell in how the word is passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America and to those people who suffered so for this generation to live it all. Thank you for bringing us home to them and them home to us. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks to Clint Smith and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. 
For the podcast, links to How the Word is Passed and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Hashtag still staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.